Welcome everybody to another episode of Need Some Introduction. In today's episode, we'll be breaking down part 20, the final episode of this season and this series, supposedly, supposedly. Let's talk about that at the end of this whole thing, Sona. Hmm, intriguing. We just wrapped up The Last of Us, a series finale that I was a little disappointed with, more than a little disappointed with. <laughs> Spoiler alert, maybe the same reaction here. And um, also, I wanted to talk to you, Sona. I saw Scream 6, so I'll talk to you a little bit about my feelings of that film. And uh, I want you, Sona, to tell me about your experience of the show, You, which I know you just wrapped up season four of that. Yep. And uh, maybe we'll have a little section at the end of this episode where we have spoilers. So check the show notes, everybody, if you want to avoid the spoilers or jump to the spoilers. We'll do the recap of Your Honor first. Oh, and I uh, also wanted to bring up the fact that I watched this episode and then I went back to just take notes. And both times I played the episode, I got a different teaser of Yellow Jackets, which starts next week, everybody. So do stay tuned for that. I also will be including... Uh, the re a recap of the finale of Yellow Jackets in this very episode at the end. So once again, check the show notes for that, just as an introduction to our next season of the show, which of course is coming next week. And Sona and I will be covering that. Very excited to see that. But I found it funny that we got these teasers, and I'm happy to see this, by the way, that really explain nothing in the show. It's just teasers of <laughs> moments and some of the new cast members, but just like flashes of it. Two different teasers, but in both cases, not a detailed trailer, which I'm 100% in favor of. <laughs> Please don't spoil it for me. And of course, we will also be covering Succession beginning next week as well. But before then, on Monday's episode, I will be publishing an episode where we talk about The Mandalorian and some other shows that are back. Ted Lasso's back. I might have a conversation about that as well. Uh, maybe catch up on Shrinking again. I'll be published some of the conversations we had, Sona the finale of Succession mm -hmm. and also a conversation I had with Sarah where she psychoanalyzed, did a case study on the family themselves. And we'll be republishing that conversation on Monday as once again, a preview for our coverage of Succession, which is only a little more than a week away now. So stay tuned for all of that. As usual, subscribe. You'll get notifications when these episodes become available. Reach out to us if you have any feedback, need some introduction at gmail.com. And with all of that out of the way, Sona, briefly, to kick things off, I just wanted to let you know that I saw Scream 6. I saw it. How was it? I was entertained by it. I would say that it is not one of the stronger titles. It has some major flaws in the fact that like, we really don't do any kind of character development. The show at this point is the film at this point. I call it a show. It really does feel like a show at this point. It's got all these chapters. But mm. the characters are all have to become suspects at one point. So then you really don't can't do any kind of character development if you can't trust anybody in the, the film. And I think that the ending, they're trying so hard to come up with clever endings now. Like I was so exhausted by the mm -hmm. machinations of the ending. And also when you start to think about the logic of it, I'm like, huh, that doesn't make sense anymore, right? Like mm -hmm. once you think about, okay, so where was that person at this point? That doesn't make any sense. There are these question marks that it kind of self-inflicted doesn't need. But on the positive side, it's, really fun to see Ghostface in New York and how he can kill at will within a crowd because it's almost like instead of being this rural area where you have anonymity, you now have this public area. Like there's this mm -hmm. great stalking scene on a subway. It's Halloween. So everybody's in costumes. It's very well done. All the kills and all the action sequences are the best in the series. Like they really have upped their game. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's cool is that Ghostface is 
scary for like maybe the first time ever. He seems to be completely deranged in the fact that even in a public place, when you're like, well, he has to go into hiding, he, right? he usually runs away when he can be discovered. He just keeps coming at people. He kills innocent bystanders. He'll grab Eek. any weapon he can and just start killing people. He really Eek. is intimidating in a way that it hasn't been in the past. Uh, hmm. Like I mentioned, everything's pretty strong from a technical standpoint. I just got exhausted by the whodunit, <laughs> which is usually uh -huh, my favorite uh -huh. part of the show, right. of the film. Uh, the coolest thing that happens, this is a very, very minor spoiler, but you know, there's always a killing in the opening scene of the film. Of course there is. And I won't give away too much here. Just the fact that there is a kill at the beginning of the film and a relatively famous actress is the one who's the victim here. And then Ghostface takes his mask off in the first scene of the film. And I was like, holy cow, this film is going to really flip the script. Like we're going, it's going to be like a uh, poker face. We're going to follow the killer around for the rest of the episode. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it doesn't quite do that, but, and so that's a little disappointing that they don't really change the formula as much as they could have. Uh, but that does set something up. So the opening the film is really the strongest part where they really feel like they're going to change the formula and then it doesn't really go in that direction. But it does make me think that maybe just maybe given the massive success of this film. It's the most popular of the, all the Scream films already. And then on top of that, all the re reaction I've heard on the internet and also from other fans is when the mask came off right away, people were so excited that the show was going, the film is going to go in a really different direction. Maybe they will take that as a sign that mm -hmm. maybe next time guys really change up the formula because I think mm -hmm. people want to see them take that risk. Doesn't quite fully commit to some of the cool ideas. It's still fun to watch, but I really do need it to maybe go in a significantly different direction <laughs> in the next film, which there would definitely be another film. This thing is making tons and tons of money. Uh, so yeah, mixed, but uh, you know, I'd say that if you're a diehard fan of the series, this is middle of the pack. It's, you're definitely going to be happy with it. If you're like you know, I saw Scream 1 and I didn't like any of the other ones, well, then you, you're not a, then don't bother. <laughs> don't bother. Mm -hmm doesn't reinvent things enough to to um to make it worthwhile. Right. All right, let's save our reactions to the episode to the end because I we might get into a digression that <laughs> that might be the whole conversation. <laughs> and uh, also because the plot breakdown I think is going to be pretty quick here. Okay. When the episode opens, we see Michael, Elizabeth, and Fia are looking through Adam's stuff. We see the Mariano Rivera signed baseball that was right. one of Adam's prized possessions and that ball has been through so many hands <laughs> on this show back in the hands of Michael. And we see Michael look at the ball. He has a quizzical look on his face. His wheels are spinning. Hmm. What could he be thinking? Well, we'll know what it is later. Olivia and Detective Costello meet up. Turns out, indeed, we were asking last week, is this her whole plan was contingent on the back Baxter district? Apparently, yes, that's the case, right? She just says, I've been working on years yeah. for this. And uh, <laughs> and that was the whole thing. Were you, were you disappointed by the revelation that this was indeed so central to the whole plot? It just doesn't make any sense to me. It's not like you're in organized crime and you've only done one thing <laughs> right, wrong exactly. in your entire life. Like the idea of it makes no sense to me. And it reminded me again, I had that feeling again in the previously when Fia is telling Jimmy, you know, you've got to stop dealing with these people immediately. They're on to you. I mean, even if he did, I really believe he's probably doing a thousand other illegal things. So yeah, right. this might be the easiest one and the most current one, but surely the statute of limitations has not run on every other illegal thing he's ever done. I don't know. It just doesn't right. add up for me. Yeah, I agree. 
Uh, and it just seems like they're just trying to neaten things up. But then it seems like they put such a focus on that. And then to really just dismiss it last week and uh, and, and all like self-inflicted because Olivia kind of showed her hand to Fia too early. Mm-hmm. It, it all seems mm-hmm. a little oddly plotted. And by the way, <laughs> this whole episode seems a little oddly plotted, actually. So the next thing we see is Gina is walking hand in th- hand with her papa. She wants to be mob boss, but uh, Carmine says that's not how things are in the mob. They they support the patriarchy. <laughs> Something about the way you just described that gave me like a flashback to an old I Love Lucy episode. Like, I want to be in the show. <laughs> oh, Lucy. <laughs> she has to put a mustache on and play the drums. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't recognize that it's her somehow. <laughs> Monica, of course, after the breakup with Janelle, wants to forget about the club and she offers to sell it to Jimmy. Jimmy says, no deal. He doesn't want to be involved with the whole drug running thing. He still has this kind of particular moral code. Also, I guess he doesn't really care about making Gina happy, although it probably would make Gina happy at this point. Michael gets a subpoena in a very terrifying way. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, next day he's taking the stand. Elizabeth goes there with him, as does Sophia. He does not prepare Sophia for any things he's going to say, apparently. Uh... Maybe he's just hoping that the questioning doesn't go there. But I mean, of course, it's going to go there. Things start off, it looks like pretty good for the prosecution's case, but then Lee, she's feeling around. This This of all the unreality of the legal proceedings, this felt a little real in the fact that she's getting quashed in all the obvious ways, but she has to try to find a way into his testimony that might benefit her. And then she starts to push. Part of the reason I probably appreciate it is because I was thinking that way. Question him about how the eyewitness testimony, did he actually see him? If he saw him, why did he recognize him, right? And of course, that's exactly the direction she goes in. And he starts saying, well, I talked to him that very day. Mm-hmm. I agree. This was all very good, I thought. There's this idea of like the six whys. Like if you want to get to the root of the problem, you keep asking why and why and why. And she just kept asking why. And then one step back and one step back and unraveled everything. And of course, the baseball is central <laughs> to this whole entire thing. <laughs> Last year, I remember there was a lot of buzz around the baseball and how it must be so important for some reason because we keep seeing this baseball and it felt a little bit anticlimactic. And so now here is the return of the baseball. That's right. They brought it back. <laughs> That's the thing that everybody's waiting for. Like, but what about the baseball? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Remember it was rolling around the floor of the car yes. and mm-hmm. <laughs> all of that. <laughs> they got it made this far. It's like a, the linchpin yes. of the whole show. And then the Baxters are all meeting together. Fia's back in the fold now. She's upset. You know, this revelation, by the way, I didn't even go into details, but in Michael's testimony, everything comes out, right? That Mm -hmm. the brother was killed incorrectly, that the Baxters wanted revenge, although they couldn't actually directly accuse them of it. But also the fact that Adam was the one who committed the, or had the car accident and accidentally killed Rocco. So all of it, all of it's out in the open. Sophia, of course, feels horribly betrayed goes back into the Baxter fold. The Baxters, meanwhile, are trying to figure out, hmm, do we kill Michael now or do we kill him later? <laughs> this was a very funny scene, I thought, with the lawyer. <laughs> yes. Where he's, you know, basically begging them to just not say these things <laughs> in front of up. him. Yes. <laughs> and finally just says, I am leaving and going I'll for leave. a walk. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You're obviously going to continue the plot of murder in front of me. Yes. I am going to get out of here. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's an interesting perspective you bring to it too. That was funny, but I also think about the fact that they're so nonchalant about this, 
By the way, I like the fact that Gina's reaction is always like, we got to kill him. We got to kill him. <laughs> no other <laughs> option. <laughs> exactly. There's no other option. <laughs> uh, Lee tries to offer the prosecutors uh, an option to get out. Well, you know, if I keep besmirching Michael's reputation, this is going to potentially blow up in your face with all those retrials, et cetera. But they don't back down. Uh, Eugene mm -hmm. wants to take the stand, and he does. I also find it funny here, by the way, when we're back in court, and now Eugene's on the stand. Throughout the whole entire episode, we just keep cutting to Isaiah Wicklock Jr. reacting in the audience to everything that happens in the, not the audience, what do you call it? The uh, gallery? Gallery? Mm -hmm. Gallery? Gallery. gallery. Uh, not the galley. <laughs> That's the kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> this is what this poor great actors resorted to in the finale of the series is just doing like takes, mm -hmm. <laughs> just crowd shots. Eugene tells us really very sad story and uh, obviously could engender some sympathy among the jury. And Michael importantly, tells Lee, he had a conversation in chambers with Eugene, which is on the record, and you should read it out in court. Because of course, the discovery there is that they had their gas cut off They be from non-paying mm -hmm. bills. And then they actually have records of it. They At one point later on, the detectives are actually checked in and the, they know that for a fact that the gas was cut off, which means, of course, we were discussing this last week, if it was fortuitous, an actual gas leak that mm -hmm. they take advantage of one. There wasn't even gas running, which now is like really <laughs> problematic when you think about it. That means that they just like bombed the building. They didn't, it wasn't even related to a gas leak. And then the cops completely covered it up. So now this makes the cops look so bad that of course, this is going to potentially tank the entire case. Mm -hmm. And yet that isn't even, turns out to be Eugene's way out of this whole entire thing. And now, of course, Sophia, just after one <laughs> one scene earlier, running into his her <laughs> family's arms, she's running away now and she has nowhere to turn. Uh, except to go check out that young priest who kind of looks like Adam, by the way. They did a good job of making her more likable. I've I've mentioned that before yeah. this season. And here, you did really feel for her. I, I oh, thought, yeah. you know, that just this poor girl, every time she turns around, someone is betraying her. <laughs> yeah, imagine being in her circumstance at this moment where it's like, dad, don't lie to me about this one thing. If you lie to me about this one specific thing, it's over between us. Mm -hmm. He lies to her, right? And now he's like, oh, she's like, oh my God, well, I got to stand by my principles and like got to get out of this circumstance. Meanwhile, the day before, it's just like, hey, you know, like the father of your kid and uh, the people mm -hmm. you've been living with, we've been lying to you the whole entire time, yeah. just so you know. Yeah. Not not many outs for her, poor lady. Poor girl, practically. Girl, yeah, in my mind. Everybody's a girl or a boy in our minds and our age. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the priest is a boy at this point. <laughs> So yeah, she she turns to the only place she can think of actually, and she goes and has tries to get some counsel from the priest. This is interesting here that she says she still doesn't believe in heaven, but she kind of needs to believe it. So it's kind of a little commentary on maybe what we need faith for in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, just something, just an interesting scene that doesn't really add much to the themes of the overall series, though. In the fallout of all this testimony, Jimmy suggests that if there's blowback on the explosion, should he fall on the sword and take the blame. Gina says it's the la the least you can do. Gina is so dislikable as, as usual, but so much more so even than in, in this particular episode. She really maxes it out in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> he even says, well, you know, I, we did it because that, that was your plan, by the way, just to let you know. And she like throws it in his face. I, I love this idea of her being like, how dare you take my terrible advice and take action on it. And then mm -hmm. when we get caught, red-handed you blame me for, for mm -hmm. suggesting the thing that i badgered you into doing how dare you how long is this type of leadership going to last uh, <laughs> a, a question that we don't yes. actually find out right so mm -hmm. 
Olivia was moved by Eugene's testimony, and she decides to make an offer that the government will take Eugene's case to put him into witness protection. And honestly, she doesn't even care if they make the case. She's really doing this for Eugene. So it's kind of a nice little mm-hmm. shading of her character that she's not this heartless manipulator that she right. kind of presented herself as most of the season. Eugene reluctantly agrees because he doesn't want to change his name. That's his catching point here. <laughs> this guy mm-hmm. has gotten so many like <laughs> outs potentially. And he's just like, it's still not good enough. <laughs> Kids. <laughs> <laughs> But he does eventually take this deal. I mean, it really can't get better than this at this point. And then as we approach the end of the episode, we see Monique confronts Gina, tells her about like, you know, I could have moved out. I offered this to Jimmy. This apparently is the straw that broke the camel's back as far as Gina's concerned. She sicks Carmine on Jimmy. She tells him, Jimmy's going to tell everything about the family. She's going to throw us all (sighs) under the bus. Carmine goes and shoots him on security camera. In the hallway. In the hallway, exactly. Which I mean, you know, this I is mean- still an operational <laughs> <Yes>. hotel. <laughs> yes. By the way, I call, I mean, I completely agree. I call total BS on this. Carmine obviously has been a mob boss. He's been smart enough and, and stealthy enough to not get caught. He would just get one of his henchmen to kill Jimmy, like in his car or something. Like, you don't just walk up to the guy. And shoot, I'm like, I got to go kill him right now. It's like such a mm-hmm. rash decision. I guess we're supposed to feel like, well, you know, he and Gina are the same, but he's hasn't been arrested. You know, he's not in jail uh, at his age. So he has got to be doing something right. So it just, this whole thing is just so convoluted. I mean, okay, yes, there are people that I guess are literally shoot first, apologize later. But <laughs> right. here, it just seemed like some conversation would be in order. Yeah. Yes. Before you start shooting to be like, hey, Gina said X, Y, Z. And Jimmy could maybe say, what are you talking about? <laughs> I mean, he may or may not. It, the end result may be the same, but it just did not seem realistic to me on any front that this happened in this way. Yeah, this is all ridiculous. You could imagine someone much younger being much rasher. You could Im- imagine someone who you're psyching them up to be like, you got to shoot first because he's going to be he's waiting for you to come. And if he sees you, he's going to shoot you, right? So you can, there's ways you can manipulate this. But like I said, Carmine is an old timer. He's been down this road a hundred times before. And why wouldn't he talk to him? Why wouldn't he threaten his life and say, you keep your mouth shut uh, if you want to breathe another day or something. And uh, when you least suspect it, we're going to blow up your car or do something, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just like, oh, but if he blows up the car, everyone will know who did it. He shot the guy in the middle of the hallway. <laughs> Everybody knows who did it. It's 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 none of this makes any sense at all. It's like ridiculous. What I do like about this is that it does have this these two women who uh, have this kind of parallel opportunism that simultaneously Monique is playing Gina to get what she wants, and uh, which is to get control of the the drug industry in the uh, business in in the sector. And uh, Gina gets what her want, what she wants is, which is to ascend to power. So I do like that this is what they were trying to set up, but the way they did it is so sloppy. It's like so ridiculous. Mm. And then we have this long montage at the end where we see where everybody uh, goes, right? Eugene is off to witness protection. Gina is now the new mob boss. Monique gets what she wants. She gets to deal drugs anywhere she wants, except on this street. Carmine is in prison because he shot someone <laughs> on camera in broad daylight. Sophia gives the baby up for adoption, drops it off at the uh, at the church. I didn't love that either. We could talk about it, but yeah, yeah, we can we can kind of take touch on all these things. I think yeah. at the very end, Jimmy's alive. Why? Why is Jimmy alive? 
opens his eyes like a horror movie at the end. It's just like <laughs> yes. there's no there's no follow up on this story. What? what? Anyway. <laughs> Michael's back in jail. Why? Why is he back in jail? Did he break his parole somehow by confessing to a crime? Or I mean, if they prosecuted him, then he wouldn't be in jail already. He'd be they'd be preparing a case or something, I guess. But I guess we don't know how much further we've jumped in time. And then for a minute there, by the way, I thought Sophia in her hysteria was going to run somebody down. <laughs> the, la the last would be like a <laughs> full circle moment, a shock expression <laughs> of her running somebody over and be like, aha, <laughs> it all comes full circle. And then speaking of which, all that, like it almost could have ended on a note like that. It's the fact that this whole ending feels like a setup for another season. This does not feel like the finale of a show or <laughs> what did you think? There were things about it that I liked, I guess, and there were things about it that I didn't. I mean, I, as I just mentioned, I didn't love this idea of Fia giving the baby up for adoption. I don't think what we know of her character, it didn't make sense to me. I could see her running away with the baby. Speaking of timeline, again, I have lost track, but that baby has grown quite a bit since the beginning <laughs> right. of this season. And I mean, I Maybe you could understand if all of this happened when the baby was a month or two months old. But this right. is like full on, you are fully bonded to the baby at this point. Right. Right. Um, so I really just don't see walking away from a child in these circumstances. And it didn't seem consistent with who we have seen Fia to be. Although I, I get the impulse of wanting to just start over from scratch. I don't think it's realistic. The thing with Jimmy, I thought was just bizarre because first of all, <laughs> as a mob boss, don't you know how to shoot to kill in like a fairly short distance? I mean, I, right. and it was more than one shot. It seemed unrealistic again that Jimmy survived this. And like you said, for what? Like, well, why <laughs> right. do right. we need that? So those were my two biggest takeaways. What did you think? Yeah, no, I'm in the exact same boat as you are. When you have these shows, and not to throw Showtime under the bus, but it's very much like Showtime. Every single season, they can't actually ever resolve anything because they want to just reset. It becomes very much like old school TV. And this is the same thing, I feel like, where I was speculating last week, like, who's going to die? Because, you know, everybody's mm -hmm. fates are potentially on the line here because this is the end of the line. Like, it could be something really cataclysmic that happens here at the end where there's almost a domino effect of people taking each other out uh, for self-preservation, which would have been maybe not the show we watched. Obviously, that wasn't really seemed to be its concerns, but they could have had a very operatic or at least ironic uh, ending there where, you know, imagine somebody sets up a trap to kill Jimmy and Michael, uh, you know, sets a trap vice versa. So you end up like, you know, every, all these traps go off at the same time and everybody's lives are destroyed and no one comes out ahead. It could have been like a ironically satisfying finale. It really much feels like they're just setting up like a potentially many more seasons of this. That's not what they were doing. So it doesn't make any sense that they would come back for a final season. And this is what they came up with at the end is just to leave things open-ended. Unless, I mean, the first season was very popular of this. I think anecdotally, the second season is still popular, but much less popular than the first season. Mm -hmm. And maybe they were thinking, well, if it's really popular again then maybe we could do like what they did with Ray Donovan where like we'll have movies about the but I can't imagine mm. anyone tuning in for another Your Honor movie and, and finding out well whatever happened to Charlie and Jimmy and Michael I'm like really does anybody care <laughs> I, I don't know if this is going to be that type of thing I, I don't understand where this fits as a finale to the show it just doesn't pay off any right. of the things that were interesting this season honestly we really strange and I don't think I have much more to say about it than that. <laughs> <laughs> There's not much meat on these bones here at the end. 
There were things I appreciated about it. I think they did a good enough job tying up the plot. Even, I mean, we spent so much time on the case here. I, I really feel like maybe they could have put the trial last week's episode and then the result and then fall out this week and then have a very, very different ending, obviously. Oh, but one thing I wanted to ask you about is wh- why is Michael back in jail? Could you speculate on, on that at all? I don't know. Maybe it had something to do with like serving the rest of the tax evasion sentence. I, I don't know. <laughs> right. You know, now that Olivia's need for him is done, it's not a hundred percent clear, I have to say. Yeah. Maybe he made a deal with um that other lady. I can't remember her name. Costello. Yes. Maybe they made some sort of deal on all of that outstanding stuff she was trying to send him to jail on. It made me laugh though because it, it like presented itself as, "Hey, if you uh, if you want to turn yourself in, just roll up to a prison, and they'll be like, oh, you want you want to you want to come in? Come okay, on come over. On in. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we'll find you a bunk. So that is the ending, ending with a whimper, not with a bang, just like uh, this episode <laughs> of our show. <laughs> all right, so so also you saw you the show on Netflix, and it had had a first half season. Now the Mm -hmm. second half just dropped about a month later. Kim has actually seen all of the first half, and she liked it as well. And she's just starting the second half now. She's just getting around to it. She just finally finished Bad Sisters two days ago. So now she can move on to her next show. (laughs) (laughs) And she liked Bad Sisters very much, by the way. So once more recommendation for that, if you guys haven't caught up on it. So let's do spoiler-free conversation about you. I'm way behind on the show, but you can feel free to give me as much detail as you want. And I've also spoiled myself on it just out of curiosity so I could talk to about it with my wife. So then maybe we'll have a, a little announcement and then we'll go into spoilers. So first of all, spoiler free, what did you think of this, the season overall, the second half versus the first half or where the show, what the direction of the show is going in in general? I really enjoyed it. I think that the concept of this show is something that could get old fast, even though it was very well done originally. I think, you know, what are we going to do here? Just, you know, every season, Joe is stalking somebody new and it ends in death one way or the other. It's interesting, but after a while, it's not, right? This is a hard discussion to have without spoilers, but I thought this was a fresh location, first of all, because he's in Europe, a fresh approach to Joe and who he is and how he deals with that. I thought they introduced a lot of interesting characters. All in all, listen, this is a show that you can't take it too seriously. You can't expect there not to be any plot holes. You can't expect it to be something that can happen in reality. I feel like the whole show is very tongue-in-cheek, dark comedy, exploring some interesting ideas though. And I think this held true to that. Before we get into spoilers, let's talk about the one thing that probably made the rounds on social media. I think you already teased it out in one of our previous conversations, the whole extrication of any lovemaking scenes from this season. Now, did he have a love interest in this season? It seemed like he was more doing detective work. Is that correct? See, I wonder if this was more of a PR stunt than anything else, because he does have a love interest and there are still scenes that are sexual in nature. I guess this isn't something that I ever really watched this show 
for. I mean, I guess Penn Badgley is attractive enough if you're into that, but, um, and it's not that I find him unattractive, but I, I have not been tuning in to see Penn Badgley have sex scenes. So maybe they were there and they were more graphic than this time around, but there's still a love interest. The assumption, inference, whatever, is that he's having sex. I think it's him shooting the scene. So I think like it's all, I think the difference is that it's off camera now mostly. Is that correct? No, but wrong? that's what I'm saying is there is still making out and, you know, it's not like he has no physical interaction with his love interest. So that's why I'm saying maybe in the previous seasons it was more graphic and it just was never why I was watching. So I don't have a specific recollection of it. So I don't know if this was to try and boost the show's ratings, but personally, Penn Badgley, like I was not of the Gossip Girl era, I guess, although it kind of seems like an interesting show and I wouldn't mind watching it, I suppose. First time I saw him was in you. So I have no impressions of him. I have no knowledge of his personal life. I have not been following his romantic life in the real world. I don't know how to put it into words, but to say that out of respect for your wife, you're no longer going to do these types of scenes. As a middle-aged person with real-life experience of the things that happen in relationships, I heard that to mean, because in the past, I've always hooked up with my co-stars and I shouldn't be doing that anymore. (laughs) Maybe that's a little little too much into it. (laughs) I mean, maybe, but that's what my middle-aged self hears, a where there's smoke, there's fire situation. (laughs) (laughs) In his defense, I have not heard his interview, by the way. First of all, he has his own podcast. I'm like, he does? (laughs) I didn't know that. That's part one. Me (laughs) either. Part two, he has a co-host. I think it's a friend of his that he uh, podcasts with uh, normally. So it came up in conversations. He brought it up in passing now that he's married and now that he uh, he's more uncomfortable having these explicit sex scenes. It it seemed to come up in conversation where his co-host was like saying, so, well, what do you do about that? And he said, well, I just told the showrunner I wanted to have less of them this season. And the showrunner, this is surprising to me, said to him, well, how many would you like ideally? And he goes, well, I'd like zero. So um, can we get close to zero? And she says, fine, zero. And he was like, oh, okay, wow. Which I think is a little weird uh, across the board. I mean, it's not zero in my mind, but maybe his definition and my definition are different. I think that there's not talking about like to what you were describing before. I don't think he's talking about the making out and things like that. I think he's talking about the explicit sex scenes, which uh, once again, because I saw all of season one when we tried to recap it last season and part of season two, season two definitely seemed to have more explicit sex scenes versus season one. And I heard, I, I have not seen this, but my wife was describing season three to me and was shocked by some of the sex uh, sex scenes in season three, not shocked. Okay. Like, well, season uh, three did have right. some weird sex stuff. <laughs> I think that That's is fair. probably what he's reacting yeah, to. Directly. Now that I'm remembering, season three did have, like there was a polyamory situation in yeah, season yeah. three. She she didn't seem to be like, you know, it didn't like shock her consciousness. She just was like, she didn't watch an episode and she would be like, whoa, I didn't expect to see that in this show, right? So I think she was a little surprised by the tone of it. Uh, so maybe that is what he was reacting to too, because the original season was on Lifetime, and right, they definitely exactly. were, you know. Exactly. So I mean, they definitely were semi unclothed, but there was like nothing but full frontal lifetime. or anything. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I mean, fair point on season three. It just right. The inference is out of respect for my wife. I don't want to do these things. So everyone who does must not respect their partner. Like I just didn't. It seemed a little <laughs> yeah. sanctimonious. I yeah. felt. Yeah, 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 it seems like there's some baggage there that is not being discussed. (laughs) 
Let Possibly. me leave it at that. What did you think of his look? Uh, I once again not having seen the show, but seeing the, you know, the the incessant ads for it on Netflix, that he has a very different look now, right? His hair's grown out. Does he have Shagginess. a beard? A beard in this? You think I would remember? Probably. Um, <laughs> I think what we're establishing here is that I am not attracted to Penn in any way whatsoever because I can. That tell might you. say something right there. Um, but that might be why you don't remember the sex scenes either. <laughs> maybe. You were looking forward to them. You'd be like, put your clothes back on. Burning my eyes. <laughs> um, no, I actually find him to be very charismatic, to be honest. But That's um, a good point, right? Why else would you watch the show? It's so much about his POV, right? Yeah, I, I do find him to be extremely charismatic and very watchable. I think, you know, this is just where I am in my life is that these aren't <laughs> the things that catch my eyes. I do historically don't care for long hair on men or even boys. So I think all, if you've seen my son, you know, he has a lot of hair and I am on top of that haircut every six weeks because I just, I don't prefer that shaggy look. I guess that's the COVID look too. I guess there's no co the mention of the COVID in this show, I would assume. My nephews are, uh, they all let their hair grow in. I, I mean, everybody. Uh, something happened with the teenage boys yes. during COVID. They all have that shaggy hair yeah, now. Exactly. Yeah. They let them all grow in. Okay. So- <laughs> After that digression, it's longer than I expected. <laughs> <laughs> the um, let's get into spoilers of uh, where you think the show landed and what it might be setting up for the future. So, be warned now, everybody. If you have not finished the show, this run of the series, then uh, skip out of the conversation at this point and check us out next week. We'll be talking about Yellow Jackets. Sona will also be talking about Succession with me as well. And um, stay tuned for all of that coverage. Okay, so spoilers for you. I'm going to ask you some questions because I just read spoilers. Um, I had actually said to my wife early on when she was recapping the first half of season four, this is four, right? Is there any chance that he's this killer and that she had basically said, no, I don't think so because of these following things. But it turns out that is the case, right? That he turned out to be the killer. Am I getting that right? Uh, first of all, am I getting that right at all? Yes. It's some sort of disassociative identity situation, yep. which I have to say, I don't care for that concept whatsoever. M me but neither. I That's why I was wondering if you were happy with, yeah, exactly. Conceptually, theoretically, no. But I did feel like it was very nicely executed here for something that, for example, in Dexter was a total train wreck. They they actually do a montage at one point where they show all the times that you thought he was in public with the Reese character that is is a real to add confusion he is a real person but he is also an alter ego in addition to being a real person that has no idea who Joe is or what Joe does Joe has created this alter ego that is a different version of that person. They do this montage where they show all the times that they were in public together. This was actually Joe disassociating. And I understand why your wife would feel the way she does because some of it is like, well, why are you at a dinner party at a long table and the chair next to you in the middle of the table is empty and you're just turning to it and talking? I mean, yes, I guess if everybody has had enough to drink or, you know, whatever, they're not going to question it, but it is strange. <laughs> yes. So you good. have to buy into that these things happened and it didn't raise anybody's eyebrows enough to cause any kind of issue. I mean, the one at the dinner party, you know, the person, the next chair over says, what did you say? And 
you know, so there is some acknowledgement that Joe is just talking to himself. I think they tried to do the best they could at like crossing the T's and dotting the I's of the fact that this guy was never actually really there. So initially he thinks that someone is killing people close to him to make him look like a killer. So the question I have, once again, not having seen the show, so it's going to be an ignorant question. So why was he killing these people theoretically? Were they threats to him? And then if his alter, if his own alter ego is trying to pin uh, murders on him, then is it like, I mean, maybe it's intentionally self-destructive, but doesn't that seem (laughs) self-destructive? The idea is that the killer is the eat the rich killer. Okay, right. There is an actual killer out there, right? Is that correct? Oh, it's Joe. (laughs) So it's not okay. I had actually thought that there was an actual. Yes. Well, that is the concept in the first half of the show is that this Reese Montrose character, um, who also is running for mayor, by the way, in real life, (laughs) um, (laughs) is the eat the rich killer. And you know that he and Joe share in common, and this is true, that they came from very disadvantaged backgrounds as a result in the first half of the show, what's being established is that Reese, but now AKA Joe, has this disdain for these people that don't understand, you know, what life is like for the rest of the world and just take everything they have for granted and don't do enough good with the power that they have, the money that they have. And so there's this eat the rich killer exacting revenge on those people that don't appreciate what they have and what they could be doing. The idea is that Reese is doing these things and is going to pin them on Joe. But we know what we come to learn is that it's Joe that's been doing this all along. Reese is actually just Reese Montrose, some guy who's never met Joe and is running for mayor. (laughs) Wow. They never even met. So there's not even, wow. Okay. Weird. Yeah. Right. I think, you know, maybe they were in the same place a couple of times, but they've never actually talked to each other. Then, yes, the idea is that he's going to pin these things on Joe, even though Joe's the one that's been doing them all along. So Joe must frame somebody else in order Um, to get the attention off of him. So this theoretically is a way to motivate the Joe persona into covering his own ass, basically. Yes. And I think to um, excuse him for doing, you know, because he's trying to be a better person, right? There's a part of him that's trying to be a better person. So that part of him still gets to exist while this other part of him that craves doing this also gets to exist. Um, There is one murder that seems to be because he was about to be discovered. He's developed this group of quite wealthy friends. And so it's like his friend group is being picked off one by one. And, you know, they they start realizing none of this happened until you showed up. So so it does seem like one murder was because maybe he was about to be discovered. But there's also some other stuff that doesn't make sense about like at one point he handcuffs himself and starts a fire that he needs to be saved from and his (laughs) love interest comes and saves him. So like you really have to buy that. (laughs) Right. This is kind of why I said before, like you can't expect the there to not be any plot holes in you. <laughs> um, <laughs> on the on the one hand, that seems absolutely ridiculous that he would literally put his like life on the line when it's himself that's doing this. I guess you could rationalize the other self also has the key, right? And you'll be like, no, he was certain there was no key in his pocket. It's like, well, yeah, he talks to himself too, right? Like he, he can hide many things from himself, right? If, if, if push came to True. shove, he could have shown up in the 11th hour and unlocked himself as well. Interesting point. There is just a lot 
going on with that. And I think there always is with that plot. <laughs> All the many times we've seen <laughs> disassociative identity order plot. <laughs> yes, which unfortunately is pretty frequent. <laughs> yes, not as rare as one would think. What also is really interesting is, you know, there's a plot that is introduced just in the first couple of episodes of the first half that you think has kind of become moot involving his ex from LA who had fled to Europe to get away from him. And she returns and you find out what really happened to her, which I guess since we're talking spoilers, I can say what really happened to her is that even though Joe thinks he basically proved that he has changed by letting her go on and live her life and not stalking her and not trying to reconnect with her. In fact, the evil side of Joe has drugged her and Joe's glass box of doom has returned. <laughs> he just didn't know about it. Yes, that part of him didn't know about it. So he thought he had really showed that he had changed. But in fact, just his, you know, alter ego had kidnapped her and is keeping her in a glass box, as he tends to do. <laughs> There's this character, Nadia, that they introduced in the first half, who is one of his students. And she becomes, you know, very key in figuring out exactly what's going on and how it's happening. And what I think is that this plot had a lot of ways to go wrong, mm -hmm. as I feel we saw in Dexter. In the first half, it was kind of like the one season of Dexter where I think it's Jimmy Smith's is like aspiring to be like Dexter, yes. right? Mm -hmm. yeah. It kind of had that feeling of like, now we're going to team up and be serial killers. <laughs> yeah. um, Which is a terrible this, season, by the way. It was a terrible season. And then the second half had the feel of that like Colin Hanks plot in Dexter. Oof. Those are the two worst seasons. You're telling me this show's not yes. so bad. That's <laughs> and I'm saying it did it in a way that was much more interesting than oh, okay. Dexter and seemed much less of a train wreck than Dexter, possibly because I do think you has the benefit of having a lighter tone. Dexter had comedy too, though. Yeah. Dexter did have comedy too, but I feel like you just generally keeps it lighter and as a little bit more comedic, a little bit more satire. And I think that excuses a lot in service of the plot. I think it's easier to forgive things that are wrong with that storyline in you than it is in Dexter. A couple of things I wanted to follow up on. One was, and once again, this is just something I read in the spoilers. He's stalked at the end by ghost versions. I mean, this is all in his head, obviously, not real ghosts of the previous girls that he murdered, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> not stalked. Um, he just, there is one uh, scene where they all kind of come back and judge him. <laughs> But you know what I did forget to say, and this could have been in the spoiler-free section, unexpected for me to see Greg Kinnear in this, and he was excellent, I thought. Oh, I didn't even know he was in this. I didn't either. And so Greg Kinnear plays his love interest father, who is evil in his own way. And um, I, I thought he did a really great job with the character. It was a very fun character to watch. The interactions between Joe and Greg Kinnear were great. Greg... Kinnear's character, which I'm blanking out on the name, but he has basically figured Joe out from the start, from the first meeting. He already knows because Joe has created this whole, you know, new life for himself with a new name, Jonathan. But Greg Kinnear knows who he is and he calls him Joe, the first meeting. At one point, because he's evil too, and he's trying to kind of convince Joe to do his bidding, he says, I think you did kill Love Quinn. Makes sense. She was kind of a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> 
It was a fun ride, I felt. I have heard about people being disappointed in this season. Maybe those people have outsized expectations for what this show can be and what this show is trying to do. Just a critique I wanted to make based on the things you were just saying. I would say that uh, on the positive side, uh, I love this um, you know, talented Mr. Ripley or the character of Ripley mm-hmm. in general in the Ripley books. I love that. That's why I was really interested in watching you and maybe my expectations were set the wrong way. But, oh, and uh, just as a follow-up to that, by the way, speaking of all this streaming consolidation we talked about, I never mentioned this to you, but maybe I mentioned to you when I was trying to watch you, but Showtime shot a new show called Ripley. It's going to be an ongoing multi-year series based on the talented Mr. Ripley. And it's been in production for like two years, two and a half years since the beginning of the pandemic. And I'm like, is this show ever coming out? And Showtime just announced recently that they're pulling the plug on all these shows that they have. They're Mm -hmm. canceling the ones that they have and moving away from other ones. And instead, they're only going to make franchises. So they're going to have more Ray Donovan spinoffs. They're Mm -hmm. going to make no joke. This isn't even even a Saturday Night Live sketch. sketch. They're going to spin off the Billions show into a show called Trillions and a show called Millions. I heard that. So anyway, that is to say that I'm like, well, what happened to this Ripley show? So I think this is actually a good thing. They sold it to Netflix and Netflix ah. is going to release it this year. And I, as soon as I heard that, I'm like, well, that's perfect. Netflix will simply just literally market this Ripley show directly to everybody, the tens of millions mm-hmm. of people who watch mm-hmm. you. And if it's successful, I'm sure they will continue since you have like five or six Ripley books that they can work off of. So there's plenty to, to go in that direction. Anyway, that is to say that I do find this concept of this killer among these elites using their own blindness mm-hmm. or their expectations of class, like hiding in plain sight. All of that's really interesting to me. The other thing I would say that is complimentary about the show was, you know, because it was a lifetime show, it had that kind of tone of being a little soapy. Mm-hmm. And um, and then when it moved to Netflix, I'm like, well, maybe they revised it. Like now it's going to be very different for season two and beyond. But instead, I think to their credit, they maintained that same tone, which I think is good. Uh, my criticism of watching the little bit of the show that I did watch is that on Lifetime, where you have a cliffhanger every single week or some kind of twist, it becomes very soap opera-ish. But you try yes. to keep people hooked in from week to week. And I honestly hoped that now that it's on Netflix, they didn't need to cram so much plot into a season because it's you watch it all at once. So why do we need so much plot, right? And I think that's my criticism, even hearing you recap some of these seasons of the show, is that it seems exhausting to have all these things happen. Once again, if you're going to watch a whole entire season of a show or even two halves, you really don't need to have like a plot twist in every episode because then it becomes, to me as a viewer, it becomes exhausting. And I'm saying this as someone who doesn't watch it, but it makes me hesitant to watch it. On the positive side, I like the light tone. On the negative side, scale back on. You don't need this many plot twists, this many convolutions. In its defense, and in contrast to something like the first season of Your Honor, it didn't feel like it was too much to me. But again, like I really like this show. I really, as I said, I really find Penn Badgley very charismatic. So, you know, I might be giving it more of an allowance than another person would. So I can't say that your criticism is unfounded. I can just say, for me personally, it didn't feel that way. Right. And I also will say, even though I am emphasizing that you can't take this show too seriously, I do think it does always have some interesting commentary to offer. Like the first season, I think, was very much about the things that we 
find romantic, you know, are they romantic because we find this person attractive and we like them, but it's truly stalker behavior. And yeah, had, exactly. if it were from somebody else, you would be calling the police. Yeah, it's it's what they say about romantic comedies, right? That like the protagonist romantic comedies should almost always be a should be arrested for some of the things they do, or B, minimally, they are toxic people. <laughs> like right. they're like dangerous exactly. people that you should never be in a relationship with. Exactly. Like these crazy expressions of the love that like, it's just not healthy. So, you know, I think there's something very interesting there. Like last season, I had mentioned to you the idea of like life in suburbia and the monotony of that and of being Mm -hmm. a parent Mm -hmm. and how you deal with that, you know, here with the, the class idea. So I do think that it is always a show with something interesting to say and saying it in a way that is like, fun and you go along for the ride. And I appreciate that about this show. I, you know, I, I take that point. I think, yeah, there are so many horror movies, you know, whether it's squid game or whether it is not always horror movies, but like the menu, which was marketed as a horror movie is really not a horror movie, but there's so many of these films and series now that explore this idea of this eat the rich, like you said, this kind of theme that is, this is a fun way to explore it, which is part of the thing I always liked about Ripley in the first place. And now having him in Europe, it's like really they're embracing the whole Ripley concept. I think, um, uh, you know, this kind of U S person trying to infiltrate a European um, mm-hmm. higher social strata of some kind. I, I appreciate that what you're saying. I think, I, I think that actually is a fun way to explore these topics. And I will say also, I don't think there's a lot of other shows like it, right? So that also makes it appealing because it's not just like, here we go again with right, the right. stalker guy right. in his glass box. Right. You know, I mean, right. I my closest reference is Dexter, which, you know, was aside from this m- most recent season, which we won't talk about, which was, you know, a while ago. So it's something that you don't, um, it's not just a garden variety type of setup that you see. As far as where things land here in this season, would you want to see a finale next season? And have they set up anything here at the end of this season that you think kind of points a direction for for next season? Oh, it's definitely set up for the next season because um, in the final scenes, they basically have found a reason for Joe and his love interest from, from this current season to move back to New York. And you kind of see this, whereas this current season is about him trying to be a better person and reject that part of himself that needs to do these things, um, these really awful things. The evolution of this season is kind of developing towards him trying to reach an acceptance of who he is and to be a good person in the way that he can be a good person, but also understand that there's no getting rid of this other side of himself. I think it'll be really interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, again, my millionth Dexter reference, um, (laughs) it kind of, it, it seems very similar to Dexter in that, right? The whole premise of Dexter was that he had these impulses to do these things and how could it be channeled in a way that was gonna be least harmful. It kind of seems like coming around to that type of idea. I think they're back in New York, which I love, as you know. And uh, he actually cuts his hair at the end, right? So <laughs> back go. to that original Joe look that we all know. <laughs> um, so I think it's very well set up for this perhaps final iteration of Joe and how he deals with the person that he is deep inside. I think this should be 
a final season, I have to say. Don't know how much more there could be after this, but you know how it goes. Never underestimate the need for programming that they know people will reliably watch, right? (laughs) I think if the ratings were higher this year, that they would probably extend it more indefinitely. Uh, this is my gut instinct in it. The ratings were good. You know, it was the number one show streaming when it premiered, but it was significantly lower than the previous two seasons, which were really like one of their most popular shows. So many popular shows on Netflix have gotten axed surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Probably whatever their new threshold is for popularity, and everybody's cutting back on uh, nowadays. That uh, I think it might not make the cut anymore. And it does seem to be a relatively expensive show to shoot, whether you're shooting overseas or whether you're shooting on location in Los Angeles or on location in New York. Why? You only have to build that glass box once and then you just keep bringing it around. <laughs> That's true. Or it could be fake, by the way, in uh, the Scream movie, which I just talked about. They are shooting in New York. They're not shooting in New York. This is all like CGI skylines. And that is not a realistic New York at all. I think they shot somewhere in like Vancouver or something. It's hysterically not New York at all. But. Vancouver, I feel like, is a substitute for a lot of other cities. For everything. Um, <laughs> exactly. But Netflix is, right, building a huge studio in New Jersey? Yes, they're building some kind of... Uh, something here. And they also have that volume, which they used for that 1899 show, which is not part of the studio. They built, the volume is just this, uh, it's like a giant screen where you can like project things on the background and actors act out in front of them. And Mm -hmm. uh, they've used it to like shoot the Mandalorian, like some of the Star Wars stuff. They shot the new Ant-Man movie this way, but apparently Netflix built their own volume as well. So, I mean, they, you know, they just want to get more into reducing their costs where they can. Maybe they shoot a you in the volume and like those beautiful apartments <laughs> and uh, skylines and everything are all rendered. Nothing is real anymore. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? It's just two people in the room. <laughs> that's it. Well, that's very inexpensive. <laughs> exactly. There you go. All right. We can leave it there or we'll get together again next week and we will have watched Yellow Jackets by then, the premiere episode of that. I'm very excited to see it. These trailer got me all into it again. So I've only seen one trailer, but it's one of those that I feel like my brain just isn't keeping up with the flashes of things and yes. understanding what I, I'm I think even intentionally at. they're just like, doesn't this look intriguing? <laughs> but we won't give you any context. Intentionally, intentionally. I'm just looking at it like, what body part is that? What what am I seeing? <laughs> pretty much. That's pretty much what the whole thing is. And then just reviews like splashed on the screen. And uh, yeah, and stay tuned in this same episode right now. I also have included a recap of last year's season finale of Yellow Jackets in case you needed to refresh your memory. I actually listened to it to myself and uh, refresh my own memory. So there you go. (laughs) (laughs) I should do that too, actually. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you for the conversation as usual. Thank you. Talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. I know what it's like. The numbness, the the paranoia. Sometimes I look at the world around me and it's like all the light has just gone out of it. Maybe Travis just couldn't stand to live like that anymore. Maybe you need to start trying to forgive him. So the title of the finale is, and pardon my Latin, by the way, Sic Transit Gloria Mundi, I believe, more or less, which roughly translates to, thus passes the glory of the world. Now, a little bit about this phrase. This is actually the phrase used or previously used and perhaps maybe still used. I'm not 100% sure on this, on the swearing in of the new pope. 
And it's supposed to symbolize that the Pope is relinquishing worldly pleasures, but also symbolizing that worldly pleasures, the world itself, is transitory, that this is a transitory phase. So what does it mean in the context of the show? And I'm assuming that you have, if you're listening to this, you have seen it, so spoilers, warning. But I think in a thematic way, these women have lost their connection to the world. This trauma of their youth has stolen those worldly pleasures from them. But more importantly, I think we are seeing Lottie rising to the head of this new religion. And for Lottie to rise, we need someone to fall. And the previous leader of the group, Jackie, is the sacrificial lamb here. But that's a transition we're seeing in this episode. So we open with, we see the girls. This is the aftermath of their doom coming. Teen Shauna, by the way, suddenly looks more pregnant. They probably upgraded her the size of her <laughs> pregnancy belly. And they're dealing with the consequences. They're kind of, it's, this is the aftermath of the crazy episode we saw last week, where there was many transgressions, all due, partially, at least partially due, to them being dosed by <laughs> Misty. In the present day, we do see Misty. And I really enjoyed seeing her at work. She's actually there to get the supplies she needs to clean up this body, Adam's body. But I liked seeing her interact with her coworkers. You know, she's super chipper and pleasant, but they don't seem to necessarily be annoyed with her presence. If anything, they seem a little scared <laughs> that she's there. So I like this little insight into what her interactions with her coworkers are. And when you need to dispose of a body, apparently you need to call Misty. She seems to know what she's doing here. She knows that home use bleach is not enough to dispose of a body. She's an online sleuth and she knows, she's read, she's seen all the documentaries. She's read all the blogs. She knows how to get away with murder. Misty shows up at Adam's apartment. She tries to be as chipper as she possibly can be about this body disposal. And you see, this is very interesting to see the women interacting here, all four of them together. Their same toxic dynamic playing out again. And they ask uh, Shauna if she knows how to dispose of a body. And this is further evidence that, you know, if there was any question mark, and I, I was mentioning in the previous recap with Sona, that we're not even 100% sure if there was actual cannibalism, although it's obviously been hinted at many times. But I guess this is even more evidence to the case where she says, I know what I'm doing. This is just like riding a gross bike. <laughs> so she's back on that bike again, disposing of Adam's body, which can't be, I mean, she was in a relationship with this guy and maybe even had feelings for him. This can't be an easy thing for her to do. And we do see a little bit of that later. And then maybe this is the thematic point of this whole episode. There's a moment here where there's a question as to whether they're all fucked in the head or if this is real. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out as viewers as well, right? Is this all something that's just happening in their minds? Are they just so messed up from all this PTSD, from all this trauma that they are permanently damaged and this bizarre world they think they're living in is not real. This is all in their imaginations. Or is it real? And I guess that's what we're trying to figure out. And that's the thing that's messing with their minds the most. In the midst of this, also this continuing body disposal, Misty says something very funny, which she says, oh, I just got deja vu. Now, <laughs> I don't know if that's an innocent deja vu or if it's just like, hey, we've been on this road so many times. This is just deja vu yet again. Another great quote from Misty's. Then after that, I mean, what if an animal digs him up? What if a hiker's dog sniffs him out? Well, what matter? Like, torsos are useless. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> That's the whole point. You only have to worry about the head and the hands. So what's the plan with those? Don't worry about it. I'll handle that. Torsos are useless. Duh. 
<laughs> of course, we all know this, that as long as the head and hands are missing, they're really not going to be able to identify the body. Well, <laughs> Misty knows this for sure. Back in flashback again, I was surprised, by the way, I was going to mention this last week as well, but Van's scars are surprisingly stylish. I mean, she's not that disfigured by this, and I have a big question that she didn't get any kind of infections in her mouth. I mean, it's your mouth. No infections on the wound, but anyway, they must have done a very good job of stitching her up because she has healed pretty well, and uh, the scar's not even that bad looking, to be honest with you. Misty's kind of on the outs here in this same continuing flashback sequence because it's revealed that she was the one who inadvertently dosed everybody, but inadvertently, yes, but why did she have the mushrooms? And B, once she saw the mushrooms going to the soup, why didn't she intercede in some case? I mean, she could have just accidentally, quote unquote, knocked the soup off the fire and could have prevented a lot of this. And then a very strange thing happens. A bear wanders into camp. Lottie had already predicted that they wouldn't be hungry for long, that she'd seen something. This bear enters camp, wanders directly up to Lottie. Well, or I should say Lottie approaches, but walks right into her and practically sacrifices itself to it, just lays right in front of her and she stabs it in the neck and kills it. And of course, this gives them plenty of work to do, first of all, but also plenty of food to eat. Now, is the bear sick? This is not normal behavior for a bear. Or is there something supernatural going on here? And of course, Lottie has, most of the interactions with Lottie would lend credence to the fact that she has some kind of true vision, but we need to see for sure. Now we cut to present day and the reunion is kicking off. This is the night of their reunion. The girls are literally, <laughs> you know, delayed from the reunion by the fact that they are disposing of this body. Their friend Allie, who didn't go on the plane, is emceeing this reunion. And she's saying some pretty crazy things here. She's mentioning how the 25 year is the sweet spot. 10 years, it's too early. 20 years, everyone's busy with their kids. 25 years, this is pay dirt. This is when the really juicy stuff happens. And I mean, when you think about it, this class and, you know, these girls specifically that were on that plane have the juiciest 20 25th anniversary story imaginable, especially when you consider the current context. Meanwhile, we see what are Natalie, Misty, Ty, and Shauna up to. Misty has gone to the funeral of the woman that she discovered had passed earlier in the episode, and no one seems to know her there. The family's like, why are you here? Who are you? She never mentioned you before. You don't know anything about my mother, the way that she describes her. But of course, we know that she's there to dispose of the head and hands. She knows what she's doing, and she put it into the coffin. So the girls are all, you know, I call them girls, but our protagonists are all traumatized anew. We see Shauna in the shower crying. I mean, she's probably the most traumatized by all of this. And of course, in the background of all this is the fact that this is also the night that Thaisa is going to find out whether she won the election or not. And she's assuming she's lost, given the polls and given her current confidence. In flashback, Ty and Van are having a conversation. Van is trying to explain to Thaisa that she saw something when she was between life and death. She saw a figure there. There was someone else with them. And Thaisa, who should know better because she's had supernatural visions of her own that she's trying to run from, is trying to rationalize what Van believes happened. But Van's not having it. I think something really, really scary happened to you. And you're trying to deal with it. I get that, but Van... I saw something, Ty. After it happened, I don't think I was dead. But I wasn't really alive, either. I think I was, like, in between or something. You were in shock. Your body was... No. I know what I saw. I don't know what it meant, but I know I saw something. Something was out there with us. Okay, so you had a near-death experience. Now you believe in what? Ghosts? Tree demons? <laughs> Wood sprites? Come on. Don't do that. I get that you're scared too, but don't act like you have any clue what's happening out here, because you don't. Van says, I know what I saw. 
I know what I feel. Natalie's trying to deal with the fact that maybe Travis really did kill himself. He's messed up from what happened. She's messed up with from, ha- from what happened. There's a very funny scene where Shauna runs into Randy at the reunion. And he tries to play it off like, hey, Shauna, how are you? And she's not having any part of it. And Shauna basically threatens his life. Shit. He told you, didn't he? If you ever tell anyone what the two of you did, I will fucking end you. I will gut you like a pig. And if they find your body, which they won't, it won't matter. Because you will be unfucking recognizable Understand? So you're mad then? Yeah. Randy, I'm mad. And I can't be mad at Jeff right now, so... Looks like it's you. Thank you so much. I get that. But... You're a good friend. You're a good friend. Because Randy did stand by Jeff, and Jeff was probably the perpetrator or mastermind behind this whole crazy scheme. So, that's the duality of Sean right there. And then Allie trying to take the spotlight away from these girls, who obviously are the stars of the show, whether they want to be or not, has this opening speech where she talks about, we have been through so much, and let's talk about these heroes. And they play a montage to Enya's only time. You could just see that (laughs) nobody's comfortable with this. In flashback, we see a confrontation between Jackie and Shauna. We see this religious zealotry starting to grow within members of the group. And we see there's a factions that are in favor, some are not. The one who's most outspoken, and really, this is the end of the line for her, is Jackie, who really should be thinking about her self-preservation when she sees all those sidelong glances at her from the crew. But she has a point. First of all, she goes, are we going to pretend that everything that happened last night didn't happen? You guys almost killed Travis. And then Shauna turns it on Jackie, saying, well, he wasn't yours to have. And Jackie says, oh yeah, Shauna? Well, I know what you would have been doing with Jeff. I know how you got pregnant. And eventually, Shauna just gets mad because she's like, oh, you read my diary? And Jackie's like, well, you're still the one who did the wrong thing first. So they both have a legitimate case to make here. But Jackie's the one who ends up kicked out of the cabin. She's definitely on the way out. Now, this intercuts with the class reunion where they mention that Jackie was the prom queen. And she should be the one who's dancing with Jeff. But Shauna will dance in her place. Which, of course, more salt in the wound for Shauna, who's remembering this interaction between her and Jackie. And we see Jackie out trying to start a fire. She's the one who's got kicked out. And we see a vision. I'm not sure if we're supposed to read this as a vision that Jackie has as she dies, or that Shauna has, a nightmare she has, or both. But basically, it's the middle of the night, and the door is opened. Shauna comes to get Jackie, brings her back inside. And this is when Jackie realizes as everybody is friendly to her, even sees some of our dead castmates, that she is dying. Shauna wakes up in a start, looks out the window, and it has snowed overnight. And Jackie's fires out, and Jackie has died in the cold. So now we know how Jackie died. And will she be eaten? Maybe. Don't waste that meat. Maybe she is the first. Also in flashback, interspersed here, we see that Travis is out looking for Javi, so we don't know where Javier is. And just to round things off, We see that Misty, who's been holding this fixer woman, this journalist slash fixer, has been held by Misty in her basement for quite some time. And Misty's decided to let her go. And stupidly, by the way, she asks Misty for those cigarettes and she lets her leave. But she smokes a cigarette and kills her or at least knocks her out. I would assume she's trying to kill her because just knocking her out temporarily is not going to help her in this circumstance. But why would she take those cigarettes, man? (laughs) No matter how bad you're jonesing for a cigarette, you never 
take a cigarette from Misty. I would never take, for sure. And she should know better. I also don't understand this weird way that Misty's doing this. If she had not gone with the cigarettes, if she had walked out and just done the right thing and just walked out the door and then bought some cigarettes, then she wouldn't have died? Misty's leaving a lot up to, to the chance that she would actually have to Jones for a cigarette immediately after leaving and wouldn't just go and buy a new pack instead of being like, screw this, I'm not going to smoke these things. So that caveat aside, <laughs> a plot hole that I really don't think is necessary. And then we see that Jeff and Shauna are like close again. Something, they've done this terrible thing together. And somehow it's brought them together again. There's a funny scene where Shauna mentions that she'd like to have a cat. I think cats are underrated. Mm. Yeah. Well, I hope this cat behaves itself. And wind up in the chili pot. <laughs> Weirdo. Hey, what's up? Kokomo? What is happening right now? Why are you guys so friendly all of a sudden? What's happening here? And of course, they're waiting to see what the results of the election are to see if Thais has won or not. And then the news comes up that Adam's missing. And at first you see like no reaction on the daughter's face, but they're kind of looking at her sideways going like, hmm, does she know who that is? Does she know what it is? But then like in that final shot, it seems like she's like, what the hell is going on? She does know who Adam is. The parents are a little too chummy now, has some crazy toxic interactions like this happened before. Why is she so nonplussed by this? And then as the episode ends, we have seen Thaisa preparing to concede the election, but the results come in, it's close, but she wins. And simultaneously, her wife, who's not ready to make amends on the phone, is in the house just getting the last of things together and finds some crazy shrine with the son's doll and the head of the dog. The dog has been beheaded <laughs> and has put been put into... Well, how big is this house, by the way? This is like a whole extra uh, area in the house. But apparently, this is not just sleepwalking. There's something way wrong with Thaisa. And uh, now she's about to be <laughs> elected to office. So problematic to say the least. And then at the very end of the episode, we see that poor Nat is about to kill herself. She's accepted the fact that maybe Travis just couldn't take it anymore. And maybe she can't take it anymore either. And just as she's about to pull the trigger, a bunch of cult members apparently jump in and they have the symbol around their necks. So this is not all in their heads. Something bigger is going on here, but it still remains to be seen whether this is something supernatural or not. We also find out in this last moment, as she has a missed call from that banker friend of hers, that Lottie was the one who emptied out his bank account. So Lottie has some kind of crazy cult of people who are following her. And are these some of the same survivors? Remains to be seen. And once again, is Lottie just a kook? Who's charismatic? Is she really having visions? And is there something even darker brewing out in those woods? And we end on what could be a coronation scene. We see that Lottie is in the woods making a sacrifice of the heart of the bear. And this is the moment where her cult begins, perhaps. The warmth of your hand and the cold gray sky It fades to the distance 